Well, we gather again to worship God. Let us resume the public worship of God by singing to his praise in Psalm 100. It's on page 362, the first version of the psalm. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our aid he did us make. We are his flock, he doth us feed. And for his sheep he doth us take. O enter then his gates with praise. Approach with joy his courts unto. Praise, Lord, and bless his name always, for it is seemly so to do. For why the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure. His truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age endure. The whole of Psalm 100, to God's praise, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Let us call upon the name of God in prayer. Gracious God and King, the one who is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, 
the only wise God, to whom is due all praise, honour and glory, both now and forevermore, it is our great duty and privilege this evening to gather before thee in worship, seeking to offer the calves of our lips, seeking to give thanks and to give praise to the one who is worthy that we should come, the one who is our creator who made us, and not we ourselves, uh, the one to whom we owe all allegiance, all obedience, all that we are and all that we have. We seek to present ourselves this evening uh, before thee in worship, mindful that as we do so, we are as those who are covered in putrefying, the putrefying source of our own sins, mindful of our unworthiness, even as Isaiah of old, uh, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I say I fell upon his face and said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And that is, Lord, how we feel this evening. If we know anything of our own sin, of the darkness of our own hearts, if we know that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in thy sight, Lord, we come and we do so with a measure of shamefacedness, knowing that the God whom we present ourselves to is one who has searched us and who has known us, who has seen the inner recesses of our hearts, who has seen our mistempers and our impatiences and uh, the iniquity of our souls and at times of our lives. Lord, we come confessing sin this evening, confessing corporate sin, confessing personal sin, uh, taking ourselves to the one who says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not because of any good in ourselves, not even in our prayers, not even in our confessions, but because the blood of Jesus Christ, thy Son, cleanses from all sin. And we thank thee this evening that there is a fountain that has been opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. And we seek to take ourselves this evening to that fountain, confessing our need of cleansing and, by faith, partaking of Jesus Christ and knowing all of his benefits. We give thanks that uh, he has promised to blot out all of our transgressions and to cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Uh, we pray then this evening that we would know the great liberty that forgiveness of sin brings, that we would trust not in ourselves, not in our own prayers, not in our own godliness, but rather that we would trust in the one who came into the world to save sinners. Oh, all glory and praise and honor be to such a Savior, one who is himself holy, harmless, and undefiled, separate from sinners, who did no sin, neither was there guile or deceit in his mouth. Ah, one who, having loved his own, loved them to the end, one of whom the apostle could say, he loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, help us then. 
Ah, to know that if we are in Christ, that we are new creatures, that the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, to say with the, the apostle that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. O Lord, we bless thee then for the great benefits of salvation, justification being right with God, sanctification being conformed to the image of Christ, and adoption being welcomed into the family of God, so that we can say, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons or the children of God. We pray thy blessing upon thy word this evening as we read it and meditate upon it. As we consider solemn things, we pray that we would be solemnized under the truth and that we would hear what God the Lord will speak, to know that to his folk he speaks peace, and yet that we would know that thy word speaks anything but peace to those who are yet in their sins, refusing to be reconciled to Christ, treading the gospel offer under their feet. Lord, if there be any such here this evening, we pray for them particularly, that they might hear the word to the saving of their souls, that as Felix heard Paul reason to him uh, concerning righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, and as Felix trembled, that they might tremble also under the word, but that they might go further than Felix went, who put the gospel off till a convenient season, a season which never came for him as far as we are aware, and will never come to us either if we continue to wait for a convenient time, that we would tremble and that we would trust ourselves to the one before we tremble, the one who is a just God, but also a saviour, the one who is the judge of all the earth who will do right, but the one who is also the saviour of the world and who is uh, the saviour of all those who trust in him. Lord, bless us this evening as we gather then in thy presence. Meet with us, we pray. Thou hast promised that where the two or three are gathered together in thy name, that Christ will be here in our midst. And we seek not at any time to presume upon such a promise, but we seek to plead that promise for ourselves to pray that the Lord Jesus might come into our midst, that our gathering might be touched by heaven itself, and that we would be moved by the Holy Spirit to great adoration, praise, worship, wonder, obedience, faith, and trust, and love. Bless this congregation. We commit them to the care and keeping of the one who loves his own church more than we can never understand the one who says that he is building his church so that the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Grant that that might be evident here in this building and amongst these people. Do them good, we pray, and in their need, draw near to them. And continue with us now, Lord, and bless us together, forgiving graciously for sin, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let us continue to worship God as we sing in the first psalm, the Sing Psalms version of the psalm, it's Psalm 1A. 
psalm which describes both the godly man and the wicked man, or the ungodly man, the Christian and the person who is not a Christian. Who describes both and then who puts them side by side so that we can see the difference between them and their uh, respective destinies. Blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk, who does not stand in sinners' paths or sit with those who mock. Instead, he finds God's holy law his joy and great delight. He makes the precepts of the Lord his study day and night. He prospers ever like a tree that's planted by a stream, and in due season yields its fruit, its leaves are always green. Not so the wicked, they are like the chaff that's blown away. They will not stand when judgment comes, or with the righteous stay. It is the Lord who sees and knows the way the righteous go. But those who live an evil life, the Lord will overthrow. The whole of Psalm 1a then to God's praise. Blessed is the one who turns away from where the wicked walk. Let us now read God's word as we find it in the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 25. We're reading together from verse 31. Matthew 25 from verse 31. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. The Lord would bless his own word to us, and to his name be all the praise and all the glory. Well, let us sing again, this time from Psalm 96, page 358. We're going to begin from verse 8. It says verse 10 on the intimation sheet. I'm just going to add a couple of verses to that from verse 8. That's page 358. Give ye the glory to the Lord that to his name is due. Come ye into his courts and bring an offering with you. In beauty of his holiness, O do the Lord adore. Likewise let all the earth throughout tremble his face before. Among the heathen say God reigns. The world shall steadfastly be fixed from moving. He shall judge the people righteously. Let heavens be glad before the Lord, and let the earth rejoice. Let seas and all that is therein cry out and make a noise. Let fields rejoice and everything that springeth of the earth. Then woods and every tree shall sing with gladness and with mirth. Before the Lord, because he comes to judge the earth, comes he. He'll judge the world with righteousness, the people faithfully. Psalm 96, then verses 8, to the end of the psalm, to God's praise, give ye the glory to the Lord that to his name is due.
Well, now with a view to God's blessing, if you would turn back with me to the portion of Scripture, which we read in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to try to consider the whole passage that we read together, but we can take your text from verse 33. Matthew 25, verse 33. And he, that is Jesus, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. We've read together the end of what commentators and theologians over the years have called the Olivet Discourse because it was a discourse or a sermon that was given on the Mount of Olives by Jesus. It covers chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13 of the Gospel according to Mark, and it deals with the end times. Uh, What will happen at the end of the world? It tells us some of the signs that will lead up to the end of the world. It tells us how Christ will come, what his coming will be like, that he will come upon the clouds, that he will come in glory. And it tells us that he will come unexpectedly, that he will come at an hour when many think not, when they don't expect him to come. And one of the great messages of this, uh, one of the great messages of this sermon is simply be ready. Be ready for the coming of Christ. And it's very interesting that the message really is that simple. When people fuss and get themselves into a bother of so many of the details of this discourse. And yet, although we might not understand all of the details, although some of the best of commentators disagree about the details, the youngest child in here today can understand the meaning or or, or the message of the Olivet Discourse. And that message is... Be ready. But we do admit that some aspects of that sermon are are difficult to understand. Um, But as we come to consider the end of the discourse, verses 31 to 46 of chapter 25, what we find is, yes, perhaps some of the things before this were difficult to understand, but, but this isn't difficult to understand. Again, I think if we walked the youngest child in here through these verses, that the child would get a good idea as to what was going to happen, what Christ was going to do, what was going to become of those who stood at the judgment seat. And we perhaps wish that this was more complicated than it was. We perhaps wish that it wasn't so clear. Sometimes when something is that clear, it it means that, that we can't argue with it. We can't argue it away. But the judgment that is spoken of here is so, so clear that not one of us this evening, we might disagree with it, but we won't misunderstand it in its detail. I'm very well aware that it's not a particularly pleasant subject, although I think that we'll find that there are pleasant parts to it. I'm also aware that there might be people, even in this building this evening, who wish that we wouldn't even consider it at all. Or if we did, that we just did so in the passing. And the reason isn't because you don't believe it, but because you don't want people to, put, to be put off. You might look around you and you might see people in church today who I don't recognize, maybe people who haven't been out in church in a while, people who've gone through hardship or people who've had troubles with the faith, and you think to yourself, well, the last thing that they need to hear is, is a subject on judgment. That might be the way that you see it. But we, 
I have to remember that the subject of judgment isn't just a minor subject in, in the Bible. It's not just a minor subject in Christian theology. It's not just a minor subject in the history of Christian theology. This is a subject that you'll find from the earliest creeds, from the Apostles' Creed, it as a prominent place there. It was a subject which was discussed, which was preached on, which was written about at length throughout all of the history of the Church. It is a subject which is at to forward in the Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation. More than any of that, it was a subject which was on the lips of Jesus Christ our Lord more than anybody else. Christ spoke about judgment. Christ warned sinners like you and I to flee from the wrath to come. So I want us this evening for a short time to consider this subject as we have it here in our text. And I want us to think about four things. Firstly, the parties at this trial. Let's call it a trial. Who will be there? And the first one that will be there is, is of course, the judge. There will be a judge. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, verse 31, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, today, judges don't sit on thrones. They sit on the bench, and there they judge. And behind the judge today, in our countries, in some other countries, behind the judge, there will be a flag, if it's maybe a, a republic. If you've seen American uh, courtrooms, you'll always have the American flag in the background. In our country, you have the royal arms, uh, the coat of arms of the royal family. And the royal arms are there to represent the crown, really to show that this is the king's court. And the judge is there to represent the king. And so when people come into the courtroom, they they bow to the judge. Uh, And not because they're bowing to the judge himself, but because they're bowing to the one that the judge represents. They're bowing to to the king, to the royalty, to the one uh, who is the upholder of the law. But you'll notice here that there is no judge who is a representative of the king. What we have rather is the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man coming in his glory. And he's not sitting on the bench with a coat of arms behind him or a flag representing the king. He is the king. And so we see here that he sits on the throne of his glory. Revelation chapter 20 and towards the end of that chapter tells us that he sits on a great white throne. That word white speaks to us of of the purity of his judgment, the holiness of his judgment, the fairness, the justice of his judgment, the justice of both judge and the judgment that he gives. So Jesus Christ, he is the judge, he is the first party. A Dutch theologian, a man called Herman Bavink, he wrote this. He said, A human being, a true and a complete human being, who knows what's in human beings, the meekest of all human beings, will be the judge of human beings. And he will be a judge so just that all will acknowledge his justice. You know there are times when people suspect judges of being corrupt 
maybe of being bribed, or sometimes just of being mistaken, having misread the evidence. Sometimes you hear of miscarriages of justice. But there will be no miscarriages of justice on this day, because the one who sees the parties before him has an all-seeing eye and an all-knowing mind. He sees and he knows all things, all the evidence is plain before him, and he does not take bribes. He is not moved, he is no respecter of persons. He is holy, harmless, he is undefiled. He has done no sin, nor can do any sin. And he is a man, one who is a man who has been a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One who knows what is in man. One who has experienced humanity. Who has walked with humanity. Who has seen the way that humanity thinks and speaks. And seen what it does. He shall be the one. Not one who is distant. He hasn't appointed an angel. Who doesn't know what it is to be a man. To be the judge. But a man shall judge men. The God man shall judge all of humanity. And it's interesting that, as a larger catechism puts it, he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come to judge the world. You know, when Jesus was in this world, he didn't just walk among us. He didn't just see the way that we live. He didn't just interact with men and women, with boys and girls like yourselves. But he was mistreated. He was falsely condemned and judged by sinners by sinners who were lying through their teeth who had corrupt and polluted purposes in all that they were doing who were driven by sin who were driven by fear who were driven by pride driven by greed had driven by hatred to the Lord and these men they put Jesus in the dock and they judged him and they said we have a law And by our law, he ought to die. We want him dead. And the leaders of the people, they they roused up the, the mob, as it were, to say, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate, although he sought to wash his hands of the deed, to wash the blood of his hands, yet he gave him over unto death. It is this man who shall come to judge the world. He who was judged, he he who was condemned to death by others. And you know, friends, we'll come to see in a moment that on that day we will be in the dock and Christ will be upon the throne. But there is a sense in which when you hear Christ preach to you, um, you aren't in the dock. Jesus Christ is in the dock. And you're on the bench. You're, as it were, on the throne of your own life. And you have to decide what to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. As you hear the word preached, you have to weigh up the evidence and say, well, is this true or is it false? Will I have this man to reign over me or will I say I will not have this man to reign over me? And so you stand on the bench and you're the judge and you decide. And your life gives the verdict on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just whether you turn up at church or not just whether you say that you're a Christian in some form or other whether you seek to live your life with this man, this God as king over your life today you're judge but that day he will be the judge and he'll be your judge that takes us to the second 
not the second point, but the second part of the first point. If the first party is the judge, then the second party, we read in verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. Every tribe, every tongue. The judge cites all of humanity to appear at this tribunal. And all will be gathered. You know, today, I don't know if you've ever had a citation to appear in court. Maybe you have. But you know, you could certainly in theory defy that citation. You could say, well, I'm not going to go. And you could go on the run. You could become a fugitive from justice. I'm not suggesting that you do it. But you could theoretically do it. And you could run away and you could try to hide. But there will be no hiding on that day. All will be gathered to appear. That word gathered is in the passive, which means it's not something that you gather yourself to. You will be gathered. You will be taken. We, we read elsewhere at the start of the sermon, chapter 24, that the angels will do the gathering. The angels of God will gather all to appear before him. And we'll all be there. You'll be there and I'll be there. All will have their day in court, as it were. And there are many today who refuse to gather at the throne of grace. And that day they will be gathered to appear at the throne of judgment. And there won't be one absent. There are absences all the time. Sometimes, you know, our church calls us to, to number the people, to number Israel, as it were, to make a census. It happens maybe once a year. And you know you've got elders and deacons and they have to make these lists. And they're standing and they're, and they're thinking, well, there's always those who aren't there. There's always somebody who's away on holiday. There's always somebody who's sick. There's always somebody who doesn't turn up. Our numbers are always down. The numbers are, won't be down on this day. Everyone will be there. No sick days. No holidays. No sleeping in days. Everybody will be there. Even the dead will be raised up for it. Again in Revelation 20, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Everybody will be there. The dead will be raised and the dust will come together. The sea will give up its dead. Those who are still living shall be sighted and shall be gathered to appear. All will be compelled to appear. All will be compelled to bow before the name of Jesus Christ and to confess that he is Lord and they will be there from every place everyone from Inverness from the surrounding areas from the islands from our nation from the United Kingdom from every country that you can think of across Europe across Asia across the Americas they'll all be there and as sure as you sit in your seat tonight you shall stand before Christ as your judge on that day. And that is a thought for me and it is a thought for you. And it is something that we shouldn't just think about once in a while when it is preached on in a church. It is something that should influence our whole lifestyles, the way that we live, the way that we pray the things that we desire, the things that we want for ourselves, for our children, for our communities, knowing that every single one of them throughout Knockbane, North Keswick, the, the Black Isle, 
throughout Inverness, everyone you know, your neighbours, your friends, your family, those who you so wish would have come out to church with you tonight, and they're not because they're careless about their souls, what concern they will have that night when they shall stand before Christ and it will be too late. You see how it should influence our Christian lives. Make us more fervent. Make us more urgent. Make us more prayerful. So you have the party. Secondly, you have the evidence. Because, of course, if this judge is just, then it's not an arbitrary judgment. Um, It is based on evidence. And the evidence is set before us here in the text those who are uh, those who are welcomed into heaven the reason is this for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me and those who are condemned the evidence against them is in verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison. And you did not visit me. It's interesting that both parties as it were. The Lord's people and, and the world. Those who belong to Christ and those who do not. They both misunderstand this, but for different reasons. The first, because they are humble and think little of the things that they do themselves. And, and they say here in verse 37, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And the king in verse 40 answers, and he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But then the condemned, they don't understand either. They say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It is their pride that they they don't realize how bad they were. They don't realize the sins that they were committing. It's not that... Or that they didn't realize the depth of them and the horror of them. And you know, that's the case with many friends. A lot of people who live in wickedness, who live in sin, don't see themselves as great sinners. Or don't see themselves as ungodly or wicked. They are. But they, as we were ourselves, perhaps. But that's not the way that they see it. Their eyes are closed to all of it. But what does this judgment teach us? What does the evidence teach us? Well, the first thing that the evidence teaches us is this, that our judgment will be a practical judgment. It will, it will be practical. It won't just be based on, on the profession that we made or whether we, we came to a church session and went to the Lord's table, whether we were members of a church, whether we said that we were Christians. These things are all important. They're all things that we should seek to do if we are the Lord's people. But, but the, the evidence goes far deeper than that. There's a sense in which these things can be superficial. There's a sense in which Judas Iscariot could have done all of these things. The evidence is far deeper. J.C. Ryle, he says this, he says, The question to be ascertained 
won't merely be what we said, but what we did. Not merely what we professed, but what we practiced. And he goes on to say, our works will unquestionably not justify us. He's not arguing for justification by works. He says we are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. But, he says, but, and this is important. This is important for us to understand today. This is important for our church to understand today. In a generation which doesn't seem to understand it. But the truth of our faith will be tested by our lives. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you're saying that you're a Christian and don't really live like a Christian, then you are not a Christian. You might say that you are. You might be a member of the church. You might be here come the communion Sabbath. But if you're not living like a Christian, either you are severely backslidden or you're just not a Christian at all. But it's interesting, isn't it? That the the judgment that we read of here and those who are condemned in it, they're not condemned for any sins committed. There are sins that they committed and these sins will add to to their condemnation. But what's mentioned isn't the sins that they committed, but the righteousness that they omitted. Not the sins of commission, the things that we do that are wrong, but the sins of omission, the things that we omit to do. That are right. And it's a reminder to us friends. That, that, that you don't have to do great evil. To go to hell. To be condemned. All you have to do. Is refrain from doing that which is right. That's all you have to do. You know the, the world today still has. And I say the world. Society still has an idea of people going to hell. It still has that. You know you ask people today. Where's Hitler today? And they'll tell you that Hitler, Hitler is in hell. Whether they understand that if they die unsaved, they're going to the same place themselves, well, well, that's another question. But people who go to that place, people who go to the lake of fire, are people who have committed great atrocities, people who've committed great sins, people who've done awful things. But the fact is that what's mentioned here isn't awful things. It's not murders and rapes and wars and all of these things. It is this refraining from doing what is right, omitting that which is good and that which God commands. Even if the Lord forgot, if it was possible for him to do such a thing, the bad things that you are done, there would be enough to condemn you and enough to condemn me as well in the things that we should have done, which we didn't. It's interesting as well that what's highlighted here, out of all of the sins that could have been highlighted, is the treatment of Jesus Christ's brothers or the church. You know, some people have taken this to say, well, well, this means that what's really important is that we should care for the poor, that we should visit the sick and those who are in prison. And these things are important. I'm not saying that, uh, that there isn't Uh, That the church and that Christians don't have a ministry in all of these things. But the fact is, it's not talking about people generally. It's not talking about um, your every Tom, Dick and Harry. It's talking about the church. It's talking about Christians. These my brethren. That's what it's talking about. The treatment of the church. 
And what Jesus is essentially saying here is that the way that you view the church, the Lord's people, the way that you treat them, the way that you love them or fail to love them is indicative of your view of Jesus, your treatment of Jesus, your love for him or your failure to love him. We read in 1 John 4.20 that if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, that means a Christian, then he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? If you love the Lord tonight, then there will be evidence of that love, not just in your adoration of Jesus Christ, not just in your uh, desire to walk with him and to obey him, but as well as that, in your love to the church, in your desire to be with them, to be supporting them, to be praying with them, to be worshipping with them, to be worshipping with them. Friends, what, what years we've had when the Lord's people have decided that it's no longer necessary for them to worship with the Lord's people. You know, I know people, and I'm sure you do as well, who, who can't come to church. And they can't because they are sick or because they've come to an age when it's not easy for them to come anymore. And you know what? If you said to them, well, if, you, if there was a day in your life when you were strong enough and you were well enough, would you be there? And, and they'll tell you, I would back your hand off to be there. I would love to be there. But the fact is that there are people, friends, in our day who could be there and who are well enough to be there and who are fit enough to be there and they'll go to Tesco and they'll go to Asta. Some of them will even go to their work but they won't come to church. They'll watch online. You know if you love the Lord's people. If you love the Lord, you'll love the Lord's people and if you love the Lord's people you want to be with them. Can you imagine... If I said to my wife, well, I, I do love you, but I think that we should spend more time apart, and I'm going to move to this house, and, and you stay in that house, and, you know, we'll still love each other and be committed to each other. We just won't see each other very much. But I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do FaceTime, and we'll do it every day, and we can speak to each other and see each other like that. What would you think of me? What would you think of my love to my wife? I'm sure you would doubt it. I doubt it myself. Well, so it is, friends, if we love the Lord, we'll love his people. And if we love his people, we will want to be with his people. But, of course, what Jesus says here concerning the judgment, in light of all of Scripture, it's not exhaustive. Uh, Revelation 20 tells us that the books will be opened. The books will be opened. What books? Well, we're not told what books. The book of... Remember, the book of life is one of them, which has the name of all of the Lord's people who will be saved. We read of a book of remembrance in Malachi. Uh, Malachi and uh, it tells us that all of the conversations that the Lord's people have had one with another are recorded by the Lord. Surely there is a book, well it's very clear to us from that context, that there is a book that has all of our deeds written in it. Everything that we've ever said, anything that we've ever thought, everything that we've ever done, we will be accountable for these things. Everything, not just that we did, but that we didn't do. Every idle word we read elsewhere, every thought will be taken into judgment. 
Jesus Christ will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of our hearts. The things that nobody knows, the secrets of your life, the things that you didn't want anybody to know, the things that you hid from other people, the things that you were glad that they didn't know, they will be brought to light. They will be made manifest. You know, I think I would be willing to be corrected on it. But I think that this tells us that the judgment will be a public thing. To be a public thing. Your judgment will be seen and known by others. And of course the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. And, and I don't want to go into the, the detail of that. But there will be a public element to it. And you might hear all this and you might think. Well firstly you might think well this, this is for the unbeliever and not for me. It's not for the unbeliever. Well it is. It's for you as well. And it's for me. We need to be reminded of th- these things. We need to live in the light of these things. We need not to be complacent. You know, very few things have brought so many people to hell as complacency. Complacency. And if that's true of others, can it not be true of us? Should we not be saying, search me, O Lord, and know my heart? Try me and see if there be any wicked thing in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad. Um, I'm not always perfect, but I'm not that bad. But you see, that's the problem. If you're not perfect, then, then you're not perfect. And if you're not perfect, you're not good enough. Does the apostle not tell the... I can't remember who he tells, but he tells someone that whoever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. James, I think it's James. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. So if you've lived your relatively perfect life, but it hasn't been perfect. You know, if you, were, if you managed to go through all of your life without sinning and then you came to the end of your life and, and you sinned very near the end, that would be enough to condemn you. But the fact is that by the time you've learned to talk, you've learned to sin. Even before that, you've learned to show your true colors, that you've descended from Adam, and that sin has corrupted you as it's corrupted every single one of us. But of course, central to all of this judgment is is what we've done with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. With the saviour of sinners. With the one who is the advocate. The, the, the lawyer. The defence lawyer with the, fa- with the father. Jesus Christ the righteous. The one who will plead the cause of his own people. The one who says come unto me all ye that labour. And are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Central to this judgment is whether we have a saviour. Whether we know the Lord Jesus Christ as ours, our Redeemer, our God and our King. And isn't it interesting what we read in John chapter 3, that this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and that men love the darkness rather than the light. That's the condemnation. Jesus came into the world and men decided that they loved their sins. They loved their unbelief. They loved themselves more. They were condemned because of it. And you know Jesus himself says to us that whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever shall deny me before men, him shall I also deny before my Father which is in heaven.
And so we have the parties and we have the evidence. Thirdly, we have the verdict, just briefly. Verses 32 and verses 33. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. You have two groups, two classifications. It's interesting. We have, we have many divisions. And if we were to divide ourselves in this church tonight, we, we could divide ourselves in many different ways according to, to perhaps to wealth. You have those who are well off and those who are maybe not so well off according to race, according to nationality, according to the way that we grew up the models that we had, the upbringing that we had, the religion that we had or or lack thereof. We could divide people according to their ability, uh, their ability to do this or to do that, to speak or or to act or to to do administration or to lead or, or whatever it might be. Those who were good with their hands, those who were good with their minds. We could divide it according to to morality. Those who've lived well, those who've lived clean lives, those who haven't brought shame and filth into their lives through through sin. And those who, who have. Those who have a past and those who don't have much of a past. Those who were raised with proper morals going to church and those basically who weren't. And we could classify people and you could go out to the world and you could go even further in classifying people uh, with, in, in terms of the way that they identify by age, by race, by religious affiliation, by any sort of other affiliation. How many groups there are today. You ask people, what defines you? How would you classify yourself? And you'll almost get as many answers as you, as you ask people. But in this judgment... All of these groupings and classifications and self-definitions disappear. And there are two classifications. There are sheep and there are goats. There are wheat and tares, believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, the godly and the wicked. That's all there is. There's no middle course no exceptions. There are those on the right and those are on the uh, those on the left. And that day you will have queens and you will have prostitutes and they will stand side by side, ready to be divided. You will have men in, in high standing positions in politics, in, in law, in accounting, in whatever it might be, and they will stand side by side with builders, with teachers, with nurses, with doctors with down and outs, with those on the dole, whatever it might be, they will stand side by side because the old classifications will have gone. There will be no rich and poor anymore. All will stand side by side and they will be put one way or the other. Sheep and goats. And it won't be, well, you'll be a sheep and you'll be a goat. They'll be recognized for what they are. Those who are already sheep will be put to the right. And those who are already goats will be put to the left. It's too late at that point to become something that you're not. That time has gone. That opportunity has passed. You are what you are. The clock has stopped. The day of grace has disappeared. And mercy's ground has 
gone from under your feet. You are what you are. And the sheep will be put to the right, which was the place of honor. Uh, Christ is put to the right hand of the Father, the place of nobility, the place of favor. And the goats are put to the left, the place of dishonor, the place of shame. You know, we often think, well, sheep and goats, um, how could they be mingled? Because it's clear here that they are mingled until they are put to the right. And we would think if I was to send probably probably the, the least educated of you in terms of farming, in terms of animals, out to a field, and I would say to you, well, identify for me the sheep and identify for me the goats. You'd probably be, be able to do that. But the fact is that it seems that in these days, and the type of goats that they had and the type of sheep that they had, they, they looked similar. They looked basically the same. And you had to go up very close. You maybe even had to be the shepherd yourself to recognize one from the other. And it was the practice of shepherds for different reasons to have to separate the sheep and the goats. I've heard a couple of reasons for it. One was for, for the sale, because you couldn't sell a goat and say that it was or think that it was a sheep when it actually wasn't because the sheep were worth more it's also the case that sometimes they needed different pasture because the goats their their, their fleece wasn't as thick their, their their coating wasn't as thick that they had to be on on lower ground whereas the sheep could go up higher so they had to be separated this is something this is something that, that the shepherd had to do. They were mingled, they had to be separated. But what's interesting is that this is a picture of the world in which we live, which is a mingled body of believers and unbelievers, of sheep and goats. Actually, probably in the context, well, arguably, in, in part of the context anyway, it's a picture of the church as well. The church, which is a mixed multitude, that is, of course, one of Jesus' great themes. That the church is a mixed multitude. The church will contain not only sheep, oh, that it did, but it doesn't. But that the church will contain goats as well. But as the shepherd knew how to recognize the sheep, so Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And he doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't put anywhere, anyone anywhere where they shouldn't be. And the sheep, they shall be fully acquitted, pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ, whereas the goats will be condemned for their unbelief and for their godliness. And none who believe on that day will be cast out, and none who live the life of the, the wicked shall die the death of the righteous. That will be the verdict. Sheep, goats, right left, justified, condemned. That is the verdict. Finally, we have the sentence. And I am reliably informed that if we're not legally minded, we might mix these two things up, the verdict and the sentence. But I'm reliably informed that there is a difference. The verdict is, is the decision, as it were, made by, well, in our context, I suppose, the jury and the judge. The sentence is the reward or, or the punishment which is imposed after the, the verdict is given. The sentence is that which is served. You don't serve a verdict. The verdict, our, I suppose in our um, 
context would be guilty or non-guilty or not proven or, or whatever it might be. The, the sentence is, is really the, the punishment, the time in prison or whatever it might be. That's what is imposed. And you have here the sentence. Then the king, verse 34, will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As a result of their faithfulness, of their love, of their feeding the poor, the Lord's people, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting the sick and the imprisoned, these things which they probably thought weren't that important, well, they were important, but they wished that they could have done more. They wished that they could have done more to serve the Lord, and yet the Lord, as he saw the faithfulness and the love of Mary, so he sees their faithfulness and their love And these people, they inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. They become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We read in Revelation that he that overcomes shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What a, what a blessing, what a future, what an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for the Lord's people. J.C. Ryle again says, he says, The least and the lowest and the poorest of the family of God shall have a crown of glory and be a king. They shall inherit the kingdom. They, will, they shall sit on Christ's throne with them. What a thought. What a wonder. And we look at that reward and we say, well, even if we are serving the Lord and trying to be faithful to him and trying to live for his glory, how short we come and how unworthy we are of anything that he would give us. As said Jacob, who said, I am unworthy of the least of all of thy mercies. How often we feel like that. And yet I have prepared a kingdom for you. I have prepared a kingdom for you. You will be a king. You will be a prince. You will be a queen. You will be a princess. You shall have a crown upon your head. You will be clothed in white. You shall sit with me upon my throne. What a happy people the Lord's people will be. What a happy people they ought to be now. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee. O people saved by the Lord. But how much happier then, when sorrow and sighing shall flee away, and they shall enter into joy unspeakable and full of glory. Is there not comfort in the doctrine of judgment, even for the Lord's people? How often we think of those who are condemned, but how about those who are welcomed? Come, not go, but come with me. Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. But... But there is a sentence for the condemned as well. Then he will say to those on his left, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This time it's not come. Come with me into the fire. No, it's depart. It's go. Go the other way. The punishment is separation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, If you're not a Christian, you might think, well, that doesn't bother me too much. But what you forget is that everything that you have, 
every what what theologians call common grace, every bite of food that you enjoy, every piece of clothes that you wear, the roof over your head, the family, the friends, everything that you have, the work that you enjoy, the sun that shines and the rain that pours to give life to the earth, all of these things, that they come from the grace and the kindness and the love and the patience of the Lord Jesus. Every good thing and those who are condemned will be separated from every good thing. And they'll be told, depart, ye cursed. You who are in your sins and who have died in your sins under the curse of the law, which is death, spiritual death, eternal death, depart, you cursed, into fire. You have the same picture in Revelation chapter 20. Whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And, and that speaks to us of spiritual and, and physical agony, of excruciating torment of body and of soul. What more can we say on that? Well, the time has passed anyway. But it is fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. The kingdom has been prepared for you, for the sheep, for the godly, for those who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ from all eternity. But hell has been prepared for the devil and for his angels, the most wicked and sinful of beings. And that is where, the, if, if you're lost today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are holding back from him, if you're refusing to trust in him, that's where you're going. That's where you're going. Into the place that has been prepared for the devil himself. Banished to the society of the wicked. Where there are no friends. Where there is no friendship. Where there is no laughter. Certainly not in the, in the sense that we know laughter. In the happy sense. If sorrow and sighing shall flee away. For the believers. Then sorrow and sighing shall be. The daily and the nightly companion of the unbeliever. And it's eternal. Into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is a fire that shall never be quenched. It's a hell that shall never end. A weeping and gnashing gnashing of teeth. Which speaks to us of great sorrow, great anger, great bitterness. That shall go on and on. Outer darkness that shall never be lightened. And it will be go on and on and on. And when you've been there 10,000 years. It will only just be beginning. The sentence. Let us conclude. These will go away into eternal punishment. Verse 46. But the righteous into everlasting life. And this really brings it all into its simplest perspective. That we will all go to heaven or hell. I said that any of us can understand this. The boys and girls can understand this. That we will all go to heaven or to hell. To paradise or to perdition. To eternal glory or to eternal shame. And the day comes and it's coming soon. And we're told to wait for it and to be ready for it. When the verdict will be given not just to another people, 
Not just people who are distant from you. Not even just people who are near to you. But a verdict will be given on your own life. What you've done with what you had. And then that will be it. Set in stone. No more change. Nothing you can do about it. But it is signed and sealed. Guilty. Or not guilty. The right or the left. Sheep or goats. Come, welcome, or go, depart. And you will be on the right or you will be on the left. And the question that I leave with you and that I must ask myself is this. Where will you be? Where will you be? You know, I I conclude with this very briefly. I do apologize for going over time. But I, I read recently in a book called Records of Grace in Sutherland about a man who lived in Strathbrora, just up the, the valley from Brora today. I don't know if there's many houses there anymore, but there were in these days. And this man lived in a village, and he was a godly man. And he was an elder in his church, but his, his church was three miles away. And he had to walk to church, and, and they walked to church in these days. And he lived at one end of the village, and he had to walk through the whole village and then go on another, say, two and a half miles to church. And this man was an elder, and what he would do was, as he walked on his way to church, he would stand at every door or every window that he passed by, people who he knew, and he would knock on the door, a uh, knock on the window, and he would say in Gaelic, he would say, Ichwaun Evelshuulov, children, are you ready? And he would move on to the next door and he would rap on the door or the window and he would say, children, are you ready? And then he would go on to the next window and he would rap it and he would say, children, are you ready? You know, friends, if we were to each of us to go out, to go out the door tonight and if we were to go round the doors of, of our own villages and if we were to knock on their windows or their doors and say, children, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared to meet your God? Are you ready to stand before the judge of all the earth who will do right? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Are you dead, ready to die or are you yet in your sins? What answer would we get? Oh, how many friends in our communities, how many throughout our nation, how many in our families would have to, if they were honest, answer that question and say, I'm not ready. Oh, if only they would see that they're not ready, that would be a start. What a solemn thing that we live in a nation, that you live in a city, that you live in communities. Some of you live in homes where you are the great minority. And most of those who you encounter and interact with day by day are not ready for the great solemn day of their own judgment. Friends, what can we do? What can we do but pray? Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest to preach the truth. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would awaken the church and awaken our communities and come again in power. Pray for those around us. Pray for our neighbors. Pray for our family and for our friends. Pray that they might be ready. Speak a word in season when we can. Because the day is coming. 
And for all we know, it may soon be here when you shall stand and I shall stand before the great white throne of Christ. And the question is this, are you ready? And am I ready? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, prepare us for that great day. Bless thy word to us. And forgive us for sin, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let us conclude singing to God's praise in Psalm 145. Uh, The second version of the psalm from verse 17. It's on page 445. The Lord is just in his ways all. And holy in his works each one. He's near to all that on him call, who call in truth on him alone. God will the just desire fulfill of such as do him fear and dread. Their cry regard, and here he will, and save them in the time of need. The Lord preserves all, more or less, that bear to him a loving heart. The workers all of wickedness destroy will he and clean subvert. Therefore my mouth and lips I'll frame to speak the praises of the Lord, to magnify his holy name forever. Let all flesh accord. Psalm 145, the second version, verses 17 to 21, to God's praise. The Lord is just in his ways all, and holy in his works each one.